Welcome to the Be Real Podcast. I'm Diana Gasparoni. I'm a visionary psychotherapist, CEO, and founder of Be Well Psychotherapy and Be Her Programs. I am Ednisha Salisbury. I am a therapist, speaker, trainer, and co-creator of Black Woman Be Whole. Each week, we will talk about the journey of mental health wellness. We will talk about why your mental health is just as important as your physical health and the connection that being mentally well has on all areas of your life. We will be interviewing psychotherapists, doctors from both Eastern and Western disciplines, authors, change makers, thought leaders, and more. Our mission is to bring you information that is both thought provoking and encourages you to look closer at your mental and emotional well-being. We give you tips and insights to taking the next steps. If you have already gotten into the door, we'll get you to go a little deeper. Each week, we're going to have real conversations, helping you work through your mental wellness questions and reminding you that you are not alone. Mental wellness is our passion. We practice what we preach. It is our mission to touch as many souls as we can with this content and leading you to a place of mental clarity and well-being. So for the next hour, let's work together, lay back on the couch and get real. Be real. It's Anisha Salisbury and me. Me, I'm here. Did Are you- she forget that she was on the show? <laughs> I, I didn't forget. I'm right here. I'm here. I'm here with you always. I'm here with you, and I'm excited to be here with you always. I'm excited too. I'm excited because we are going to be talking about recovery. This is going to be a whole series. Yes. We do have a series on recovery coming up. It's um, we are talking about substance abuse recovery and really being able to live a full and productive, thriving life despite little bumps along the way. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, this is it. We're kicking it off today. But aren't you going somewhere? Isn't that something that's coming up? I mean, I'm happy to talk um, about recovery, but I, I mean, mm-mm. are you? Are you, uh, mm. okay? So I'm going to Mexico, <laughs> right? Let's put it out there. And Diane and I both love Mexico. We've been to Mexico too many times at this point. And I think that she's a little salty. I, I a little really bit. Do. Just a little bit. A little bit. We've actually been to Mexico together. Yes. Right? We were we were there at one point together. And um I am. I'm a little, I'm a little salty. I mean, there is the open-hearted, loving part of me that is like, <laughs> please be safe. Please enjoy yourself. Please have a wonderful time. Don't get your, COVID. <laughs> don't get COVID <laughs> for your two weeks on the beach. Two weeks on the beach. Two weeks. What, what she's not <laughs> saying is I am still taking clients. I am still seeing the same amount of clients that I would see at my dining room table in New York city. I am just seeing them in Mexico now, which, so it's kind of a vacation, but it's not, but I have made sure in my schedule, there's time for the beach in between (laughs) sessions. I just promise I will not have a drink in between. I will just go to the beach and have food. Yes. And you, you, everybody, all our listeners know that we work together and they know that we're therapists and they know that we all need a change of scenery. But what they don't know is that I can see your calendar. So <laughs> looking at your calendar going, mm, beach. what are you going to be doing? Diana walking back. Oh, let's walk from one room to the kitchen. <laughs> 
just envious of that change of scenery. I want you to go and like super enjoy yourself so much for the both of us. And I really don't want you to work while you're away, but I know that you're going to. Now, yes. this is, you have been multiple, <laughs> multiple times. And considering how long we've known each other, we also had, I had a trip to Mexico where when you were my intern, I forgot your paperwork there, didn't I? Yes. <laughs> so, when I first started working with Diana, she was supposed to read some stuff, give me some feedback. I'm waiting and waiting and waiting. Yeah. And I, know. Ooh, I don't know. Yeah. It took you a while, but she did tell me the truth that she left you to Mexico. <laughs> I did. I left this whole thing of paperwork in Mexico, which is why I'm encouraging. Like when you're, when you're on vacation, you should really be on vacation. Maybe not bring your work with you. And at that time, I think it may not have just been your paperwork that I left there. I think maybe I left our guests paperwork. There yes. Well. <laughs> yes. I think that her, you and Becky were interns at the same time. So yeah, today we were. we're super excited to kick off our series on substance abuse and recovery with one of our own, Becky Kavosi. I'm really hoping I'm saying her last name right. Kavosi, Kavosi, who is a therapist at Be Well. She was with us when... For when they were interns, obviously they were together with us. And then Becky um, has a full career outside of Be Well, but she is a therapist with us and she is one of our substance abuse specialists. And she is very vulnerable and open about her own journey and the work that she does with patients. So I'm really excited for her to be here with us today. And, and doesn't she have an series. event coming up? Oh, thank you so much. Yes, she does. So Becky is having a live webinar event on Thursday, October 29th at 7 p.m. And you can go to the Be Well events page, bewellpsychotherapy.com backslash events and get all the information. And then you'll also find it on our social media. You can sign up. And if you have any questions after you listen to Becky, you can sign up for her event and you can ask her in real time because she will be available for all Q&A at the end of her event. Nice. So can't wait. Grab your tea, sit back and have a listen. As you know, I am a huge supporter of therapy. And if there was ever a time to prioritize your mental well-being, it's now. As the founder of Be Well Psychotherapy, I am proud to announce my team is leading the way in online therapy. Be Well is based in New York City, and we were one of the first practices to pivot to online therapy with the outbreak of COVID-19. With over 15 licensed therapists, Be Well offers a variety of methodologies and approaches so you can select a therapist that is a good fit for you. We help individuals of all ages, including kids, teens, couples, and wait for it, we even have online group therapy. There is no need to struggle alone with feelings of depression, anxiety, isolation, grief, or loss. To learn more, visit BeWellPsychotherapy.com or text BeWell, that's one word, to 484848 to get connected with a therapist today. Again, that's BeWellPsychotherapy.com or text BeWell, one word, B-E-W-E-L-L, to 484848 to get connected to a therapist today. And now back to our amazing show. So we are back with Be Real. Isha Salisbury. Where's my co-host? Is she? She's here, girl. She's here. 
Um, I'm right here. It's me, Diana Gasparoni, hanging out with you. And we're doing like a bonus episode this week. We're here together twice. I love yes, it. Yes, guys. We are working on Saturday. So we are. It was it had to be right. So we're gonna we're gonna say that. And so the good reason is I have someone, you know, Diana always gushes about her friends that are here. So I'm gonna gush about my girl. <laughs> so I'm so excited. Becky is here. And just to give you a little bit is um, Becky and I met in social work. I think social work school probably has to be one of the most stressful, vulnerable. We did that together. And so the funnier thing is that we were interns at the same um, middle school and we were also Diana's interns. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, you were. Yes, yes, you were. And since then, we've always had a really close relationship. We now work together too. So this has just kind of come full circle, right? We were interns together. We were at NYU together. Now we work together. It's been a really amazing journey with Becky. And I am so excited to have her here today to talk about her journey with recovery. Becky, can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Hi, good everyone. And Diana and Anisha, I just can't thank you enough. It's just full circle. I think it was about eight years ago that I met you both. And Anisha and I learned so much from Diana. We had no, we didn't, we had no idea what we were doing. And, you know, I still hear Diana in my mind when I'm, I'm doing my work. So what that work is, is I'm a, I'm a licensed clinical social worker, I'm a manager, and I'm a psychotherapist at Be Well Psychotherapy uh, with Diana and Anisha. Um, identify as a healer, but I also identify as someone in recovery. And I'll get more into that shortly. So that's kind of who I am, where I'm at today. I do want to name that A, I appreciate ladies the space to be vulnerable. And B, you know, what I'm sharing today definitely comes from layers of privilege. You know, I am a white woman. I am a working professional in the middle class world. I, you know, I have a job and I come from, you know, a comfortable enough background. We all have our various traumas over a life cycle, but I, this is from a place of privilege. You know, I have worked with people of all walks of life that might have their stories look a little different, but I did want to name that. Well, we appreciate that, Becky. Before we get into it, I just had to bring this up because it, it just like popped into my head. When our internship was over, Becky and I decided to take Diana to dinner. Um, We took her to dinner and also our supervisor at the middle school. So the whole time we were to each other, Diana, I don't know if you knew that. We were like, how much is this going to cost us? Oh my God. Because we were students. We had no money, right? I think I was working part-time, but Becky was, wasn't at all. So I, I had a little bit of money, but not much. And so you sent us um, the restaurant that you wanted and you sent over um, the menu. And we were like, ooh, this might cost us a pretty penny. And for us, I think it cost us like $250. For <laughs> we were like, oh my gosh, she's going to have one. What are we going to do? How are we gonna pay <laughs> she's going to keep, she's just going to order. Oh, oh, I did not know. But it was oh. amazing. We no. were able, we were, we were fine guys, but I just had to throw that out there. What oh my goodness. We ended up at the coffee shop or maybe that was a different night. That was a different night. Okay. It was me. Diana seems to hold on to her Uncle people. Frank. <laughs> <laughs> Uncle Frank. Yes. Yes. Once if you come in to the web, <laughs> you come close in, I keep you. 
<laughs> especially the good ones. Keep them close. I'm so excited to be here with you two ladies today. And thank you, Becky, for letting for starting the beginning of your story with us and letting us know. And I can't believe it's been eight years. It's a long time. So let's go a little deeper. Let's talk about your journey of recovery. Let's talk about what's happening. Absolutely. You know, I think my beginnings of my recovery might look similar to some, maybe not. I, so I grew up in, I, my parents moved around a lot. I was born in St. Louis. I moved to Boston. I spent my formative years in Maryland. And then when I was about 18, my parents relocated to New York in around 2006. On paper, a normal upbringing. When I talk about recovery today, I want to name that I'm talking about recovery from substance use. My drug of choice is alcohol. I also want to name that in my case, the recovery encompasses mental health issues as well, right? Often people who drink, not everybody, but often people who you might use substances have an underlying co-occurring issue. So growing up, I think it was around, well, let me, let me back up. So my parents are teetotalers. I have a very kind of rigid, strict Middle Eastern father. My mom's all Italian and they don't drink. They maybe mom will have a glass of wine. They, they're just not drinkers, right? So I came from a household where alcohol was taboo. My uncle, my paternal uncle um, struggled with opiate addiction. He, you know, utilized heroin for years um, and he got, got off heroin. He got clean. I don't like to say clean because it infers you're dirty if you're a user. So let's use a different word. He, he curtailed and then essentially stopped his heroin use. Also on my paternal side, my great uncle was a bottle of vodka drinker a day. It essentially killed him. Right. And then on mom's side, there's questionable drinking things. We don't necessarily know. Recently learned there could be some mafioso ties. We don't know. But um, my point is, is that there's a genetic predisposition, right? I have two siblings. I have an older brother and a younger sister, and neither of them struggle with alcohol abuse and use. They have told me they feel like their tolerance is a little bit higher than their peers, but they, they're just not big drinkers. It's never been an issue for them, right? So I do believe there was this genetic just perfect storm for, for my predisposition. Um, you know, and there's also the environmental piece. When I was about 14, you know, I went to an all-girls Catholic, happened to be affluent high school in Baltimore County. And anyone familiar with Baltimore County <laughs> knows that for whatever freaking reason, there's like 13 private schools and two public schools and like everyone who, who has the means goes to private school. And I think single sex private schools leads to, we're going to get wasted on the weekend and go hang out with the boys or the girls or whatever. Right. So at 14, I noticed, you know, starting to drink, it was young, it was young, but I think not uncommon for teenagers to drink. And I started to realize that I was drinking a little bit more than my peers. I was never really a solo drinker. I always liked to drink with peers. So, you know, I would get very drunk on the weekends and it got to the point where I couldn't remember. And, you know, there were certain, because my parents didn't drink, hiding some of that use at family functions. And I don't know if you guys have ever like pretended you weren't drunk and people around you are like, bullshit, you're, you're wasted like right so it became kind of like a little bit about that you know escalating in college I was able to manage my grades to a degree and I would attend class but I was I was drinking and smoking marijuana heavily every single day every day I think it was about age I'm 33 now I think around 18 I recognized that you know this is going to be a lifelong thing I've been arrested twice I was hit by a car as a result of my drinking. I lost some friendships. But on the flip side, 
on paper, I functioned, you know, when I was working with Diana and Anisha, there was definitely some alcoholism in my life, but I think I hit it to a degree. I don't know that you would have known, or maybe you did know. And I think that's where it becomes complicated, where you can get a master's degree, you have the privilege to kind of have those supports, but yet you have this secret. And then the secret manifests into shame. And that's compounded with whatever I felt like, you know, now I know I was self-medicating. So after college, I became exuberantly, like just very depressed. My alcohol use increased, but I was hiding it. I was working. I subsequently moved to Southeast Asia where I, I learned Thai and I taught English to young, beautiful students in the South Thailand. And interestingly enough about Thai culture, it's a huge drinking culture, right? So I would drink, teach, do my thing. And then I remember applying for social work school from a couch. I moved back to the States. I worked a little in a restaurant and then I began this, this journey of graduate school. And at that time I was like, okay, I can't keep going like this. So then I decided to just drink on weekends. And what would happen was I would be in Penn station at like 5am drinking with some locals and homeless people and celebrating. And, and this is, you know, it wasn't safe. And my, my hangovers weren't just like, Oh, I'm tired. I feel like tummy hurts. Like I had really acute, almost suicidal ideation. Um, and then some hypomanic episodes. I think at that point, I recognized that I had at least at the very least depression. Saw a psychiatrist. I began a long journey of trying various different medications, but for me at the time, they weren't working because I was still using pretty heavily. And when I say heavily, you know, there's two forms of alcoholism. There's alcohol abuse, where you have these ruptures, you have problematic drinking, you'll know first, but your loved ones often know you have, for me, it was binge drinking. And then there's alcohol dependency, which I luckily never had is where you drink every day to the point of getting the shakes, you're at risk for detox, and you have to be essentially in the hospital. So I, I'm, I was not the latter, I was a, a binge drinker. But because of my binge drinking medication never worked. Um, I took breaks here and there. Anisha mentioned that we, our first internship was in a school. In my second, in, so in social work school, you have these various clinical internships where we have no fucking idea what we're doing, but they, they let us learn and we, we learn from our, our clients and our patients and they, it's invaluable. My second placement, believe it or not, was in an intensive outpatient treatment center for individuals with substance use disorders. So here I am binge drinking on the weekends, smoking lots of weed, and I am a bright-eyed, bushy-tailed social worker in an outpatient substance abuse clinic. So wait, let me ask. Let me <laughs> let me something right there. You are generally at times able to choose that second internship. Was that a choice for you? Was that intentional? Is that the place that you wanted to be because you were thinking more about, hey, you know, is there a problem here? Am I self-medicating? What does it look like to be in recovery or choose something different? Was that, were, were those thoughts there when you decided to take on that internship? Great question. And no, in short, unconsciously, probably. I actually had requested a criminal justice involved internship. And subsequently I have worked in uh, with formerly and currently incarcerated people, but NYU where Anisha and I went, they said, well, we'll put you in a substance abuse treatment program because we don't have anything. There's a lot of overlap with the criminal justice system. And that's just what they had. And my address at the time was on Long Island. And I think it was just a convenient fit. So in short, no, that wasn't on my mind, but it definitely brought up a lot of feelings for me. I mean, I was running group alone with people experiencing substance use. Some were mandated and some were there voluntarily. And it was, you know, it was everything. There was a lot of um, Hempstead, Long Island. There's a lot of opiate use, a lot of crack cocaine use, a lot of alcoholism. And, and 
what was great about that job was the demographic was very diverse. We had literally all walks of life. We had a group of just nurses and doctors who in that population, there are people that use a lot because they have access to pharmaceuticals, right? Pharmaceuticals and, and controlled substances. And I'm not all medical professionals use drugs, but there is a, <sighs> there is a large amount that do. So a lot came up for me at that internship for sure. You know, it's interesting that they also put me <laughs> at an internship for substance abuse, right? It was like a harm reduction place. They put me in my second internship. And so because I have drug abuse in my family, it was very, very triggering for me. Mm-hmm. And after a couple of weeks, I realized that I can't do this, right? Mm-hmm. Like I, I said, NYU, you have to put me somewhere else. So I wonder what was that feeling like for you? So for me, I was very overwhelmed and it, it just brought up too many feelings for me. And I said, I, I need to move on to something else. Did you ever feel like you were overwhelmed and you needed to kind of move on and do something different? Uh, yes and no. I I kind of compartmentalized myself in a, for better or for worse in that space because this is where it was confusing. Uh, my supervisor, my peers, they were like, you're great at this. You're running group. I was doing individual therapy. And I, I do have, without blowing smoke, I have Diana to thank because she really rounded me out in the very beginning stages of how to do that individual work. It was, but oh, you can blow the smoke. I appreciate it. Correct. Yes. Go ahead. I mean, the, you can just like, go ahead. Diana tell wants me. all the smoke. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I do genuinely respect Diana and Anisha as clinicians wholeheartedly. So, you know, I think I was prepared enough for the individual group treatment. So it was confusing, right? Because I'm getting all this feedback, like you're killing it. You're one of our best interns ever. But then on the weekends, I'm home, I'm depressed, I'm drinking, or maybe I'm out with peers drinking. And I'm like, there was a lot of feelings of hypocrisy, inadequacy, and guilt and shame that came up. Because on the one hand, I felt like I was impacting my patients and like understanding where they were coming from, but I myself hadn't addressed my behaviors. So it it felt icky, but at the same time, confusing because I was getting good feedback. The parallel, if we're going to use some jargon, right, in the parallel process of it all is you're like experiencing some of what your patients are talking about and not, and it's becoming more conscious. I too had a substance abuse outpatient mental health <laughs> second year um, internship, which ha- they, they happen to be the the best training grounds, right? We're like, mm-hmm. you learn so much about yourself and also you learn so much about the work, so um, continue. I also wanted to, I, I'm also reading a paper about risky teen behavior right now. So we can jump back to when you were 14 <laughs> later on in the episode, because uh, it's very interesting and we'll get there. But young girls, teenage girls are actually more susceptible to an addiction or a long-term abuse of a substance if they start between like 14 and 15, unlike boys. So it has to do, it also has to do with the chemical and the chemicals in your brain, but how your brain is formed and where your frontal lobe, we can, we'll go on. (laughs) It's really interesting. It's really interesting because I think that also with co-occurring disorders, we can also see them start to form as the hormones start to change and shift. And as we start to self-medicate in that time, looking at the development and over this time, as you're talking, where you become more aware of yourself, Becky, in relationship to the substance. And as the brain starts to form, you become more of like, you're because you're right when you're where you are now in your age is right where your brain is now an adult. That being said, let's go on. 
No, yeah. Very excited about my adolescent. And we can, oh, adolescent paper, but right. And we can even just in, in brief, yes, this is true from the prefrontal cortex lens, but also, you know, women have more fat um, and less water than men do anatomically. And so we metabolize alcohol a lot slower. So that's why the cliche, the stereotype where men can drink so much and believe women can drink too. Just anatomically, we, we process and metabolize alcohol differently. Um, it's true. And in my youth, a teenage, I, I had a lot of very high risky behavior sneaking out in the middle of the night because I went to an all girls school. There was a lot of like, how do we impress the boys? It was interwoven in sort of the self-esteem piece. But yes, what you're speaking to is science and, and genetics. And the, yes, the younger you start, especially among women, the, the likelihood that you'll have more of an issue with it later in life. Mm-hmm. Absolutely back to that we were so how, we were we oh, were in sorry. the present sorry present. <laughs> yeah so you know i had that internship it brought up a lot of feelings for me i think that at that time is when i really started to take therapy seriously and i found a therapist um and we were able and i for me i needed a therapist that saw things in more gray. I didn't want sort of that black and white thinking around my drinking because I wasn't ready. The thing about your substance of choice is it's a love hate. You begin to love it. You know, like that's my love. You know, when I drank, I felt like fireworks going off. I felt really safe. I felt um, really happy. I felt really good. So to quit that would be to sacrifice something that I love, um, but something that also did me a lot of harm and damage. So I found a therapist and we started to work sort of from this harm reduction frame, which is essentially just reducing harm, literally. Um, so, okay, what about if you just drink on weekends or maybe drink beer instead of wine, beer instead of liquor? I also, you know, alcohol, alcoholics and on, I think we'll get to resources later, but I, I have attended AA meetings in the past. It's not something, 12-step programs are not something I'm oriented in now, but I definitely believe in them for people who um, it works for and that like to attend. It can hold you very much accountable. You know, part of my problematic substance use, and I think this is common, led to problematic relationships. I'm, I'm a cis female heterosexual, and a lot of the men I dated over the years also had substance use issues. So it's kind of like we found each other and it was hard to get out because you're getting out of a relationship. But you're also getting out of that relationship with alcoholism. For me, um, for others, it's, you know, other drugs of choices and substances of choices. Again, it was confusing because I've, I've had social work jobs and I've worked as a clinician since 2014. And my drinking, there was a Christmas party one year where I got a little talking to from a boss, but like ultimately I was able to function at work on the outside, but on the inside, I was just like a mess. I think I love the fact that you point that out, that you were able to function because you can live a highly productive life and, and, and still, you know, struggle with um, substance abuse. So for you, when do you believe the recovery started, right? Like on, when, when did you get on that path to say, listen, things have to change and, and I, I want something new for myself? So the complete abstinence from alcohol, I've tried, you know, several times over the years. Right now, I have a year and a half of just no drinking. But for me, recovery began, I think, around college. So maybe about 13 years ago when I really decided, okay, I'm going to cut down. I, you know, I'd be at bars and I'd fill a bottle with water. Um, so I always sort of, mm-hmm. I guess, to answer your question is I think that you can be in recovery and not necessarily be in your the place where you're um, wanting to be. I see it as like break setting goals, right? Um, Mm -hmm. I would take 40 days off of drinking, see how I felt. And then I'll ultimately pick up again. I try different medications, a note on medication. Everybody's brain is different and it can take years to find the right med. And for me, it took about a decade. 
that said, not everyone who uses might end up with with a diagnosis. For me, it was bipolar two disorder, but bipolar two disorder can look similarly to borderline personality disorder. And we won't get so into it, but for me, it took a while to even name a diagnosis. I still don't really know what my diagnosis is. I just knew that I, it just became, I was going to die. I was going to die if I kept drinking. And I had someone tell me that. I think that was the impetus of real recovery. I think that was 2015. I, I saw someone who said, you're going to end up in prison or dead. You know, I had blacked out, fought NYPD, ended up arrested. And then on that Monday, I went to work, right? So it was like, what the f- was I doing? Um, and for any listeners out there, you know, I I value my experience because I think it informs my work, but I also recognize that everybody's story is different and everyone's an individual and alcohol is different, right? Because it's everywhere, it's normalized, it's a big part of culture. Um, during COVID-19 specifically, I've had peers and patients and loved ones say, you know, I'm drinking a little more than, than usual. We're in a pandemic. We're quarantined. It makes sense. And it's only, I, I say this all the time, it's only a problem when it becomes a problem for you. So I don't know that I answered adequately, but my recovery has been for years, I but I really started to take it seriously was when my life was at risk. Well, I really love that the way you're defining recovery, because I think that for me and for a lot of people out there, when they think of recovery, they think of like complete abstinence. Right. And that's that point that you've been abstinent. And that's that's when you start to recover. I love that you are you're noticing that this started much earlier for you, maybe when you when you actually started to acknowledge it and started to realize that maybe this is a problem. And how do I now practice harm reduction? That's when the recovery began. Yes. And then it sort of evolved. I mean, something I'll say is sometimes I think when we see it in the movies or we see it in and maybe even our work, it, it's a nice, pretty bow. You get recovered mm-hmm. and then you got the bow on it. And it's like, okay, I'm good. The icky part of getting sober from a substance is that that's when my whack-a-mole metaphor I've, I've heard before, but like thing, other things pop up. You quit drinking. Oh my God, I'm so proud of you. This is great. But then it's like the underlying issues seep out. And I'll be very honest with you, something um, that I'm working on now that's part of my recovery is I'd never recognized I was a binge eater. Mm-hmm. So I quit a lot of people. Well, I don't want to say a lot of people, but some people have a perception that when you quit drinking, you'll lose a lot of weight because of the caloric intake. For me, I ended up gaining a lot of weight significantly so that it affected my blood pressure. It affected you know, my self-esteem. Um, I replaced binge drinking, binge drinking with emotional eating. And that's where like group and therapy has been helpful. So like, I'm still in recovery. I don't feel any urges to drink, but I do have some problematic relationship with food now where I feel like I overeat, but it's something that I'm actively working on. So again, recovery is not fancy. It's not beautiful. Maybe for some it is, but for me, it's like the things that pop up, you know, and then there's the whole piece of like, well, where can I go to bars? Can I hang out with people who drink? And for some, right. some people don't. Some people, especially in the rooms, I'll say the rooms, that's AA, NA, Narcotics Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous. They say, if you're going to you hang out around a barbershop long enough, you're going to get your haircut. And for me, I have another privilege is I have very, very solid support system, y'all included. And, and so I feel comfortable being around them, even in a bar setting, because they know they hold me accountable. You're not drinking. Can I get you a seltzer? I was never a seltzer drinker ever. Didn't like it. And now I can't get enough. (laughs) Now you can't get enough. (laughs) I love that. Um, I just want to acknowledge your vulnerability and how honored I am to sit and have this conversation with you and you just be so clear and open about just like, it's not sexy. It's like, 
it you get like it wasn't it wasn't sexy getting there and then like after you get clean after you stop drinking i'm gonna try not to use clean it the work is still done the work is still there so becky i wanted to talk a bit more about you as a, your work as a psychotherapist uh, i think it's so important that people are able to find a therapist that maybe understands them a little bit more so people who are in recovery who have struggled with substance use. You know, when I think about a lot of the clients that I see um, as a black woman, a lot of people reach out and they say, you know, they wanted to talk to a black woman because they realized that I could understand not all, but some of their experiences and it became so important. So I realize there's probably a lot of people out there who are very grateful, your clients that you can understand, you know, um, their plight in life. And so can you talk more about your work as a psychotherapist? Absolutely. So yes, I think people want to be heard and understood and it's helpful when they have someone coming from a different experience or the same experience rather. And I think with race, you know, you're a black woman and we know you're a black woman and your patients know, I think with recovery, <laughs> it's a little more nuanced because they might not know, right? Of um, course. I will say that there are certain people who don't want to work with people with someone who's in recovery because they think they're going to be judged and that, oh, you're going to want me to do exactly what you do. So interweaving that into my work is I, as a therapist, as a psychotherapist, I don't, I don't give advice. What I do is I really, deeply, I deeply listen and I listen for blind spots. And by blind spots, I mean, someone might be talking in there, maybe they haven't put two and two together, right? I'm not going to tell my patient that I think that you're, you're an alcoholic or a substance abuser. I want to hear from them what they think. So for example, I might have a patient say, you know, I keep blacking out. I went to this work party. I did coke after I'm partying and like, it's fine. And I'll say, you said it's fine. Like, do you, you really think it's fine? And you know, it's, I'm not here to tell you it's a problem, but let's, let's, let's unpack that. Like, what do you think? And then um, sort of you know, if they might say, you know, it's a non-issue. And, and my, I do long-term work. I believe in that therapy is a process over a life cycle. I also want to plug that I think most of us therapists, if not a lot of us should, should be in therapy. And if you're not, you know, you, maybe it's financial or you have your reasons. I know in some countries in France in particular, they pay for and let therapists be in therapy. It's a requirement. So, you know, I love it. So for me, oh, it's just another plug for me to move to Paris. Okay, go on. Yeah, I mean, a big part of a big part of my abstinence from alcohol at this point is my career. You know, I want to be. You know the the whole cliche metaphor is if you're in an airplane, you got to put on your mac oxygen mask first, and then put on the person next to you. So for me, I'm in a place mm -hmm. where my lifestyle is an ongoing work in progress. I have my own social supports and treatment in place. So when I work with a patient, I don't project that onto them, but I explore with them essentially how they can feel the best version of themselves. And I think often with substance use, it becomes such a big part of their lifestyle. You know, I have patients who don't struggle with substance abuse issue, but maybe their boyfriend does or their partner or their loved one. And so how to, how to manage and kind of provide education about how to deal with, with loved ones. And I know Adnisha earlier in the call, you said, you know, you have substance abuse in your family and how that's triggering for you. So again, to answer my work is long-term, I really meet my patients where they are. I don't want to assume you have a problem. I want to unpack what you might think and kind of look for blind spots. And, you know, this doesn't just encompass 
drugs and alcohol, you know, sometimes relationships can be addicting. Sometimes, like I said, food for me can be addicting. Sometimes maybe we purge when we, some, some people do when they eat and that's addicting. So like any behavior that you want to examine for me, like I, I'm not just specialized in substance and use, it's any behavior that you've identified, you want to better understand. I think that's important. How are you making that decision to disclose and how, you know, and what is that like for you? Or do you disclose? It's a complicated question with sort of an even more complicated answer. I think I'm very open, but I want to keep my work focused on the patient. And I don't want them to have to worry about me or think about, oh my gosh, is my therapist going to be drunk? You know, where your brain can go. But I also pick and choose who I disclose to. Because for some people, I'll say, would it be helpful Mm -hmm. to know that like, you know, maybe I have some similar issues. And for some people, they're like, they don't want to know. And for some, they do. I think it's, you have to be very careful what you disclose, but I'm obviously on a podcast talking about it and open about it. But my biggest key (laughs) is I only want to disclose if it's helpful for the patient. I don't want to disclose to make it about me. I like my questions to be about the patient. So if I feel my experience can help their experience, I'll disclose. But if it feels like it could kind of hinder where they're at, they're fun, maybe they, they're not there yet or maybe they don't want to know because some people don't want to know anything about their therapist. They think we come down from some cloud and that we like don't exist in the world. Right. <laughs> oh. <laughs> just like land gently land. into the office. So it just depends, Anisha. And I have some that really appreciate it. I've disclosed before where I could tell sugar that maybe might not be the the right time. But, you know, identities are multifaceted. Yes, I'm an alcoholic, but I'm also have a lot of other parts of my life. So it depends, you know, and I think the most important thing is I want my patients to feel safe. I want them to feel heard. Um, Nothing is worth everything is worth exploring. You know, I don't know if you guys get a lot of this. Do you get patients who say, especially during the pandemic, they'll say, well, so many people have it worse than me. I feel weird talking about this. I feel guilty. Does that happen to you guys? Oh, it happens all the time. Why are you asking? <laughs> I'm asking because I'll have a patient say, you know, I had a rough night or, or, you know, I think my drinking's a little out of control, but like some people have it worse than me. You know, why does it matter? So like my goal as a clinician is to get you to know that your, your stuff does matter, right? Everybody yeah. in their own world and our worlds impact each other. And, and if I can help your world as a therapist, that's the goal for me. So Mm -hmm. I think a lot of us in this field, I say wounded healers, therapists aren't perfect. A lot of us have been on our own journey and that's why we feel like we can share the space with you. And it's always an honor for me to share the space. Um, It's been harder virtually, but I still, you know, we're making it work. And I I look forward to the day I can be back in in a room with my patients and really share uh, the energies. Yeah. Being in the room is so important. And I think as you're talking about the idea of disclosure, and yes, we disclose when we think we can move the patient forward. I know in, at different times when I've disclosed parts of myself, it's definitely been an intervention for the patient so that he or she feels like they need that like next level of some identified to something else. So like it feels good to move forward. But I also think that at the beginning of this this topic that we were just discussing, like thinking about the sober curious, I'm going to use that phrase, or like the person who is looking for somebody who is successful and in recovery so that they already have that identification and like coming into the room and knowing that it's like, it's, it's funny how, um, not funny. It's curious to me how the profession is also changing now as we have to like put, because we're at home, 
right? And we're at like the marketing ourselves and getting ourselves out there because our business card is now social media or online marketing and what we say about ourselves or how we get ourselves how we find patients who connect to us. And I just think that it is, it's a gift for lots of people to be able to know a little bit more because no matter what they know, it's still just a fantasy. So it's like, it's a little bit more about you to like get to feel safe because safe, because I know one of the things that does come with the recovery is being able to tolerate the shame and being able to talk about what their thoughts were or they were hiding when they come into the room and like, just you have the, um, the gift to be able to have that door open in a different way is what I think with this disclosure. I appreciate that. And I, and Nisha, I think you were about to say something, but quickly, there's a lot of stigma around substance use. And in mm-hmm. my approach is if you're a patient and you walk into my office and um, you're interviewed, you're intravenously using heroin. You know, my first question is, have you been tested for hep C? Is there a way for you to get clean needles? Have you thought about sniffing it? Where are you at? Do you want to stop? Do you want to keep using? So yes, I'm abstaining, but when you walk into my office, I want to just better understand where you are. You know, I think it's also important to name, and I know we might have to wrap up soon that we're in New York City. And in New York City, there's you can buy alcohol in every corner at 24-7. Outdoor dining is this kind of European style phenomenon, but you know, alcohol is literally <laughs> everywhere in our city among the drugs. So I think whether you're in recovery, whether you want to be in recovery, whether you're sober curious, as Diana said, I think it's important to talk about these things when if and when you're ready. And again, my approach is yes. I'm in recovery. Yes, I'm in therapy, but I want to name that your story looks different than mine. And we're, we're going to, we're going to read that story together. Oh, that was so well put. I love that. <laughs> uh, maybe I want to be your patient, Becky. Oh, no, I have a therapist. That's right. <laughs> I have her. I have her. I have her. Now we know you're taking new patients right now, correct? I am taking new patients, primarily evening hours, 45 minute sessions. I would love to meet you. I'm seeing patients through Be Well Psychotherapy and I've learned from the best. (laughs) And we also, um, we also do have on, um, and we'll make sure that we have this in the show notes and we'll add it to the social media. We do have openings in your sober curious group. So there will be a group If you are curious, if this is something that you had a thought while you were listening that like, huh, maybe, maybe I want to explore this a little bit more, but I don't necessarily want to do it alone. So Becky has room uh, in that group as well. Well, Anisha. Yes. Did we forget anything? No, I just want to say thank you. I really do. Thank you, Becky, for number one, just coming on, but also just being very vulnerable um, I think it helps people to realize that anyone can be in recovery. Anyone can be struggling with something, but also live a really productive, healthy lifestyle as well. And then there's many places to get the help that you need. You can find the community of people who can support you. You can do AA, NA, like there's so many options. You can go through therapy, right? Like there's so many places where you can get the support that you need. So I appreciate that. Yeah. And lastly, which I didn't say in my story, I, in addition to being an intern, I actually did outpatient treatment for eight weeks Mm -hmm. and it was so fruitful and it was hard to take off my clinician hat, but as a patient and as a clinician in the room, it really informed the way that I run groups. So I feel privileged to have have both lenses in that regard. Um, And you're right. Substance use does not discriminate unless you're talking about the crack epidemic where the government infiltrated and destroyed black lives. Um, Substance use does not discriminate. It can affect everyone and anyone. 
Yes. Um, thank you so much, Becky, for your openness, your honesty, your vulnerability today. So we're we're close to the end. So we're playing around with what the end, what we're going to call the end today. I'm going to call it the B side, <laughs> right? Because we have be real, be well, be her, be whole. <laughs> so I think I think we should flip it to the B side. We'll get okay. with Dawn later and see if that's what we're going to call it. So we need to we need to like really pronounce what the end of the show looks like. So because now it's Anisha's turn. She's going to take it from me. She's going to ask you some rapid questions, get you going. I have nothing, nothing to do with what we talked about today. <laughs> Just so you know that. Okay. Nothing. Uh, Becky Solicitor. So the first question is, yeah. How have you been brave today? Ooh, I think coming on a podcast was my bravest thing. I will also say it's my birthday this week and I invited my parents to dinner and I love my parents, but I think it can be brave to have to uh, see them sometimes. Okay. That's super brave. You invited your parents to dinner and you came on a podcast in the same week. Yeah. Ooh. Okay, girl. Happy birthday. Same day. Yeah. No, thank you. Um, the other question is if you could only eat one food, like what would it be? If you can only eat one thing, like forever and ever and ever. Well, there's one thing I didn't mention. I'm seeing a nutritionist now for my my issues. But okay. if what she said, what she would say is low carb protein veggies. What I would oh, say. Oh God. What, what would you say? <laughs> what, what would you, would you say? eat? Your fantasy girl. Crazy about seafood. I love all shellfish. I okay. love it. I'm a seafood junkie, and I was able to. Um, actually eat seafood this week for my birthday. So I felt blessed. So seafood maybe. Okay. Um, okay. Like some, some shrimp girls. I mean, shrimp, I crab, crab legs, lobster. I love all of it. Hams. I love well, She did live in Baltimore. I was just going to say, it sounds so. like a Baltimore diet right there. Yeah. Our, definitely. Our, our producer has thrown up a third question. So Is we he have, asking it. He, he's not going to ask it. I'm going to ask it. So I'm going to throw it in there. So we want to know what your favorite episode's been so far, Becky. Oh, I liked the episode when we talked about, or you talked about sex and sexuality and what that looks like. And, and I thought that was really interesting when you, and I can't remember her name, but when you interviewed, she was so well-informed. Uh, Andrea Dresser. Yes. Nisha, that's a passion of yours. So it was really great to hear your input as well. I, I really mm-hmm. liked that episode. I think you've done a really good job of giving um, a lot of you know, in these tumultuous times, you know, with the murder of George Floyd and, and just highlighting clinicians of color mm-hmm. and therapists of color. So I've liked those episodes as well. But the let's talk about sex, baby. I love that. <laughs> that one where I was like embarrassed the whole time. And my, I, you learned that. I oh, can't my gosh. Like- it was so funny. <laughs> it was so fun. There was applesauce. There, yes, 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 yes. Very funny. Very funny. Well, Becky, thank you so much for hanging out with us today. Um, uh, you can find Becky at bewellpsychotherapy.com and we will make sure that all of the information is in the show notes and it is at the end of Nisha and what we are still living in a pandemic. So, so be safe, stay safe, wash, wash your, hands. your hands, go for it, girl and wear your damn mask. <laughs> Thank you so much. And we're going to stop here. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Be Real podcast. Stay connected to us and subscribe to Be Real wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you are feeling it, how about a five-star review? If our conversation sparked a question, join us in the Be Real podcast Facebook group. 
We hope that you have walked away with some new insights, curiosities, and ideas to better help you on your journey to mental wellness and overall well-being. I encourage you to go to BeWellPsychotherapy.com and check out our services and programs. Again, that's BeWellPsychotherapy.com. Okay, we have to stop here, but I'll see you next week.